Section three of The Crimson Circle by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter six. Thalia Drummond is a crook. The commissioner looked down at the newspaper cutting before him and tugged at his grey moustache. Inspector Pa, who knew the signs, watched with an apparently detached interest. He was a short, thick-set man, so lacking in inches that it was remarkable that he had ever satisfied the stringent requirements of the police authorities. His age was something below fifty, but his big red face was unlined. It was a face from whence every indication of intelligence and refinement was absent. The round, staring eyes were bovine in their lack of expression. The big, fleshy nose, the heavy cheeks, pouched beneath the jaws, and the half-bald head were units of his unimpressiveness. The commissioner picked up the cutting. "'Listen to this,' he said curtly, and read. It was the editorial of the Morning Monitor, and it was direct to a point of offensiveness. For the second time during the past year, the country has been shocked and outraged by the assassination of a prominent man. It is not necessary to give here the details of this Crimson Circle crime, particulars of which appear on another page, but it is very necessary that we should state in emphatic and unmistakable terms that we view with consternation the seeming helplessness of police headquarters to deal with this criminal gang. Inspector Parr, who has devoted himself for the past year to tracking the murdering blackmailers, can offer us nothing more than vague promises of revelations which never materialize. It is obvious that police headquarters needs a thorough overhauling and the introduction of new blood, and we trust that those responsible for the government of the country will not hesitate to make the drastic changes which are necessary. Well, growled Colonel Morton, what do you think of that, Pa? Mr. Pa rubbed his big chin and said nothing. "'James Beardmore was murdered after due warning had been given to the police,' said the commissioner, deliberately. "'He was shot within sight of his house, and the murderer is at large. This is the second bad case, Pa, and I'll tell you candidly that it is my intention to act on the advice which this newspaper gives.' He tapped the cutting suggestively. On the previous occasion, you allowed Mr. Yale to get away with all the kudos for the capture of the murderer. You have seen Mr. Yale, I presume? The detective nodded. And what does he say? Mr. Parr shifted uneasily on his feet. He told me a lot of nonsense about a dark man with toothache. How did he get that? asked the commissioner quickly. "'From the shell of the cartridge he found on the ground,' said the detective. "'I don't take any notice of this psychometrical stuff.' The commissioner leant back in his chair and sighed. "'I don't think you take notice of any stuff that is serviceable, Pa,' he said. "'And don't sneer at Yale. That man has unusual and peculiar gifts. The fact that you don't understand them does not make them any less peculiar.' Do you mean to say, sir, said Parr, stirred into protest, that a man can take a cartridge in his hand and tell you from that the appearance of the person who last handled it and what he was thinking about? Why, it's absurd. 
"'Nothing is absurd,' said the commissioner quietly. "'The science of psychometry has been practised for years. Some people, unusually sensitive to impression, are able to tell the most remarkable things, and Yale is one of these.' "'He was there when the murder was committed,' replied Parr. "'He was with Mr. Beardmere's son, not a hundred yards away, and yet he did not catch the murderer.' The commissioner nodded. "'Neither have you,' he said. Twelve months ago you told me of your scheme for trapping the Crimson Circle, and I agreed. We've both expected a little too much for your plan, I think. You must try something else. I hate to say it, but there it is.' Parr did not answer for a time, and then, to the commissioner's surprise, he pulled up a chair to the desk and sat down, uninvited. "'Colonel,' he said, "'I'm going to tell you something.' And he was so earnest, so unlike his usual self, that the commissioner could only look at him in amazement. "'The Crimson Circle Gang is easy to get. I can find every one of them, and will find them if you'll give me time. But it's the hub of the wheel that I'm after. If I can get the hub, the spokes don't count. But you've got to give me a little more authority than I have at present.' "'A little more authority?' said the dumbfounded commissioner. "'What the devil do you mean?' "'I'll explain,' said the bovine Mr. Parr, and he explained to such purpose that he left the commissioner a very silent and a very thoughtful man. After he left headquarters, Mr. Parr's first call was at an office in the centre of the city. On the third floor, in a tiny suite, which was distinguished only by the name of the occupant, Mr. Derrick Yale was waiting for him, and a greater contrast between the two men could not be imagined. Yale, the overstrung, nervous, and sensitive dreamer, par, solid, and beefy, seemingly incapable of an independent thought. "'How did your interview go on, Par?' "'Not very well,' said Par, ruefully. "'I think the Commissioner's got one against me. Have you discovered anything?' "'I've discovered your man with a toothache.' was the astonishing reply. His name is Sibley. He is a seafaring man, and was seen in the vicinity of the house the following day. Yesterday, he picked up a telegram. He was arrested for drunken and disorderly conduct, and in his possession was found an automatic pistol, which I should imagine was the weapon with which the crime was committed. You remember that the bullet which was extracted from poor Beardmore was obviously fired from an automatic. Parr gaped at him in amazement. "'How did you find this out?' And Derek Yale laughed softly. "'You haven't a great deal of faith in my deductions,' he said with a glint of humour in his eyes. "'But when I felt that cartridge, I was as certain that I could see the man as I am certain I can see you. I sent one of my own staff down to make inquiries, with this result.' He picked up the telegram. Mr. Parr stood, a heavy frown disfiguring what little claim to beauty he might have. "'So they've caught him,' he said softly. "'Now I wonder if he wrote this.' He took out a pocket-book, and Derek Yale saw him extract a scrap of paper which had evidently been burned, for the edges were black. Yale took the scrap from his hand. "'Where did you find this?' he asked. "'I raked it out of the ash-pan at Beardmore's place yesterday,' he said. The writing was in a large, scrawling hand, and the scrap ran— you alone, me alone, block B graft. 
Me alone, you alone, read Yale. Block B. Graft? He shook his head. It's Greek to me. He balanced the letter upon the palm of his hand and shook his head. I can't even feel an impression, he said. Fire destroys the aura. Parr carefully put away the scrap into his case and replaced it in his pocket. There's another thing I'd like to tell you, he said. Somebody was in the wood who wore pointed shoes and smoked cigars. I found the cigar ashes in a little hollow, and his footprint was on the flower beds. Near the house? asked Derek Yale, startled. The solid man nodded. My own theory is, he went on, that somebody wanted to warn Beardmore, wrote this letter, and brought it to the house after dark. It must have been received by the old man, because he burnt it. I found the ashes in the place where the servants dumped their cinders. There was a gentle tap at the door. Jack Beardmore, said Yale under his breath. Jack Beardmore showed signs of the distressing period through which he had passed. He nodded to Parr and came toward Yale with outstretched hand. "'No news, I suppose?' he asked, and turning to the other. "'You were at the house yesterday, Mr. Parr. Did you find anything?' "'Nothing worth speaking about,' said Parr. "'I've just been to see Froyant. He's in town,' said Jack. "'It wasn't a very successful visit, for he's in a pitiable state of nerves.' He did not explain that the unsatisfactory part of his call was that he had not seen Thalia Drummond, and only one of the men guessed the reason of his disappointment. Derek Yale told him of the arrest which had been made. "'I don't want you to build any hopes on this,' he said. "'Even if he is the man who fired the shot, he is certain to be no more than the agent. We shall probably hear the same story as we heard before.' that he was in low water, and that the chief of the Crimson Circle induced him to commit the act. We're as far from the real solution as ever we've been. They strolled out of the office together, into the clean autumn sunlight. Jack, who had an engagement with a lawyer who was settling his father's estate, accompanied the two men, who were on their way to catch a train for the town where the suspected murderer was detained. They were passing through one of the busiest streets when Jack uttered an exclamation, on the opposite side of the road was a big pawnbroker's, and a girl was coming from the side entrance, devoted to the service of those who needed temporary loans. "'Well, I am blessed,' it was Parr's unemotional voice. "'I haven't seen her for two years.' Jack turned on him open-eyed. "'Haven't seen her for two years?' he said slowly. "'Are you referring to that lady?' Parr nodded. I'm referring to Thalia Drummond, he said calmly, who is a crook and a companion of crooks. Chapter 7 The Stolen Idol Jack heard him and was stunned. He stood motionless and speechless as the girl, as though unconscious of the scrutiny, hailed a taxicab and was driven away. Now what the dickens was she doing there? said Pa. A crook? and a companion of crooks, repeated Jack mechanically. Good God, where are you going? he asked quickly, as the inspector took a step into the roadway. I intend discovering what she has been doing in the pawnbroker's, said the stolid pa. She may have gone there because she was short of money. It is no crime to be short of money. Jack realized the feebleness of his defense even as he spoke. Thalia Drummond, a thief, 
It was incredible, impossible. And yet he followed unresistingly the detective as he crossed the road, followed him down the dark passage to the loading department, and was present in the manager's room when an assistant brought in the article which the girl had pledged. It was a small golden figure of Buddha. "'I thought it was queer,' said the manager, when Parr had made himself known. "'She only wanted ten pounds, and is worth a hundred if it's worth a penny.' "'What explanation did she give?' asked Derek Yale, who had been a silent listener. "'She said she was short of money, and that her father had a number of these curios, but wanted to pledge them at a price which would allow him to redeem them.' "'Did she leave her address?' What name did she give? Thalia Drummond, said the assistant, of 29 Park Gate. Derek Yale uttered an exclamation. Why, that's Froyant's address, isn't it? Too well Jack knew it was the address of the miserly Harvey Froyant, and he remembered with a sinking of heart that Froyant made a hobby of collecting these eastern antiquities. The inspector gave a receipt for the idol and slipped it into his pocket. "'We'll go along and see Mr. Froyant,' he said. And Jack interposed desperately. "'For heaven's sake, don't let us get this girl into trouble,' he pleaded. "'It may have been some sudden temptation. "'I will make things right, if money can settle the affair.' Derek Yale was eyeing the young man with a grave, understanding look. "'You know, Miss Drummond?' Jack nodded. He was too miserable to speak. He felt an absurd desire to run away and hide himself. "'It can't be done,' said Inspector Parr, definitely. He was the conventional police officer now. "'I'm going along to Froyant's to discover whether this article was pledged with his approval.' "'And you'll go by yourself,' said Jack, wrathfully. He could not contemplate being a witness of the girl's humiliation. It was monstrous. It was beastly of Parr, he said to Yale when they were alone. The girl would not commit so mean a theft, the stupid blundering fool. I wish to heaven I'd never called his attention to her. It was he who saw her first, said Yale, and dropped his hand upon the young man's shoulder. Jack, you're a little unstrung, I think. Why are you so interested in Miss Drummond? Of course, he said suddenly, you must have seen a lot of her when you were at home. Froyant's estate joins yours, doesn't it? Jack nodded. If he would give as much attention to the running down of the Crimson Circle as he gives to the hounding of that poor girl, he said bitterly, my poor father would be alive today. Derek Yale did his best to soothe him. He took him back to his office and tried to bring his thoughts to a more pleasant channel. They had been there a quarter of an hour when the telephone bell rang. It was Parr who spoke. Well? asked Yale. I've arrested Thalia Drummond, and I'm charging her in the morning, was the laconic message. Yale put down the receiver gently, and turned to the young man. She's arrested? Jack guessed before he spoke. Yale nodded. Jack Beardmore's face was very white. You see, Jack, said Yale gently, you have probably been as much deceived as Froyant. The girl's a thief. If she were a thief and murderess, said Jack doggedly, I love her. Chapter 8. The Charge Mr. Parr's interview with Harvey Froyant was a short one. At the sight of the detective, that thin man blanched. 
He knew him by sight, and had met him in connection with the Beardmore tragedy. "'Well, well,' he asked tremulously. "'What is wrong? Have these infernal people started a new campaign?' "'Nothing so bad as that, sir,' said Paul. "'I came to ask you a few questions. How long have you had Thalia Drummond in your house?' "'She's been my secretary for three months,' said Froyan suspiciously. "'Why?' "'What wages do you pay her?' asked Pa. Mr. Froyan mentioned a sum grossly inadequate, and even he was apologetic for its inefficiency. "'I give her her food, you know, and she has evenings off,' he said, feeling that the starvation wage must be justified. "'Has she been short of money lately?' Mr. Froyan stared at him. "'Why, yes.' "'She asked me if I could advance her five pounds yesterday,' he said. She said she had a call upon her purse which she could not meet. Of course I didn't advance the money. I do not approve of advancing money for work which is not performed, said Froyant virtuously. It tends to pauperize. You have a large number of antiques, I understand, Mr. Froyant, some of them very valuable. Have you missed any lately? Froyant jumped to his feet. The very hint that he might have been robbed was sufficient to set his mind in a panic. Without a word, he rushed from the room. He was gone three minutes, and when he came back, his eyes were almost bulging from his head. "'My Buddha!' he gasped. "'It's worth a hundred pounds! It was there this morning!' "'Send for Miss Drummond,' said the detective briefly. Thalia came, a cool, self-possessed girl, who stood by her employer's desk, her hands clasped behind her scarcely looking at the detective. The interview was short, and for Mr. Froyant, painful. Upon the girl, it had no apparent effect whatever. And yet, she must have known, from the steely glare in Froyant's eyes, that her theft had been detected. For a little time, the man found a difficulty in framing a coherent sentence. "'You... you stolen something of mine!' he blurted out. His voice was almost a squeak. The accusing hand trembled in the intensity of his emotion. Y "'You're a thief!' "'I asked you for the money,' said the girl, coolly. "'If you hadn't been such a wicked old skinflint, you'd have let me have it.' Y "'You—you—' spluttered Froyant, and then with a gasp. "'I charge her, Inspector. I charge her with theft. You shall go to prison for this. Mark my words, young woman. Wait, wait!' He raised his hand. I will see if anything else is missing. You can save yourself the trouble, said the girl, as he was leaving the room. The Buddha was the only thing I took, and it was an ugly little beast anyway. Give me your keys, stormed the enraged man. To think that I have allowed you to open my business letters. I have opened one which will not be pleasant for you, Mr. Froyant, she said quietly, and then he saw what she was holding in her hand. She passed the envelope across to him and with staring eyes he saw the crimson circle. But the words written within the hoop were blurred and indistinct. He dropped the card and collapsed into a chair. End of section 3